Hello, and welcome to this live recording from Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. So sit back, listen in, and enjoy what God's got to say to you. Gentlemen, thank you so much for coming out tonight. Uh, so really uh, a privilege to be able to gather as men together. Let me just remind you, uh, PIE, P-I-E, stands for Purpose, Inspiration, and Encouragement. That's what I tell my wife once a month, and, uh, but I'm actually here only for the pies. No, but... Uh, <laughs> But really a privilege to be able to be here um, and, and just uh, as Scripture says in Proverbs twenty seven seventeen, just as iron sharpens iron, so we, we cherish one another uh, and the countenance of one another. And so a really a privilege to be able to be here uh, and to just fellowship together and, uh, you know, work through uh, life's journey together. Uh, really my privilege to be able to introduce Alan Meyer to you. Uh, Helen is married to Alan, and Alan to Helen. They met in high school, and uh, they began working their lives as, as school teachers in uh, 1983. Uh, they were appointed senior pastors of Care Force Church, uh, a church that grew to over 2,500 people. Uh, with a passion to see people healed and restored and living lives to the full for God, uh, they began and established Care Force Life Keys. Uh, and that ministry helps to release people uh, through healing, discipleship, and evangelism, now used in over 2,300 churches uh, in over 20 countries uh, in our country and also all over the world and internationally. Uh, Alan has a doctorate from Denver Seminary, and uh, his program was produced to restore and fortify the moral and spiritual integrity of men, and you would have probably heard of that amazing course called Valiant Man. Uh, his lovely wife has a master's in education and also in counseling and uh, a master's in sexual health at Sydney University in 2017. The reason I tell you that is because there is a, a talk on Saturday morning for ladies, which I'll tell you afterwards uh, about as well. Uh, they have four children, uh, a number of grandchildren, and also been married for 51 years, and their wedding anniversary is in two days' time. And so... So really a privilege to have you here tonight, sir. We, we welcome you and we pray that God will use you uh, to speak to us tonight. Thank you for being here. Well, if there's anything to be learned, gentlemen, from tonight, it's that you should register for Pie Night. Um, I personally withstood the temptation to have a go at what looked like one of the better pies I've ever seen in my life. So next time, sign up, show up, and eat up, and uh, everyone will get a big fat pie. It'll be a grand thing. Now, I'll tell you a little story. Honour is a fine thing. The guy was a uh, professional bagpipes player. He was phoned up one day, and he was booked up by a wealthy man in a country town um, who phoned him to say that a, a homeless man had died in their community and he felt that at least in his death he ought to be honoured. Apparently he was a Scotsman. And uh, he said it would be great to play the bagpipes at his funeral. So he agreed, signed up for it. On the day of the funeral he headed off into the country town, drove around, could not find uh, the gravesite for love and the money. He realised he was going to be hours late, but finally he found it. Here's a group of men... Uh, sitting, the, the hold is still open, the dirt's still piled up on the side. Obviously, the hearse and everything had gone. 
But he thought, no, um, I've been hired to do a job. I'm going to do, going to do the job. He gets out his bagpipes and uh, puzzling, of course, the men are sitting there having their lunch. Uh, he starts to play. He played Danny Boy. Very beautiful thing. It was so beautiful, one or two of the workmen began to cry. Uh, then he moved on to Amazing Grace and he played it with such passion that every one of the workmen cried, stood up and put their hats over their hearts and even as the bagpipe played, began to cry himself. It was very, very moving. And at the end of it, he felt he'd truly honoured uh, this gentleman, packed up his bagpipes and with a heavy heart, but feeling like he'd done the right thing, he began to move back to his car. When he heard one of the workmen say to another, he said, you know what, he said, I've been doing this job for 20 years. And that is the first time I have ever seen anyone pay that kind of respect to one of my septic tanks. <laughs> well, even a septic tank deserves a little honour. And tonight, so do you. And it'll be my privilege to uh, forgive me. The, co the connection you've made in your minds is totally unfair. Uh, let me do a little advertising... Uh, before we talk about a man and his anger, uh, Helen and I uh, now, uh, this, is the, this is the way in which we earn our living. We handed our church over after 26 years, some time ago, 10 years ago. And since that time, we coach and encourage churches into being more effective as restoring communities. And there's a lot of restoration in this country that's needed. For men, particularly valuable from judge to father. And I'm going to talk a little tonight about how sometimes kids can feel that uh, we're their judge more than we are their father. One of my favourite resources, if you've got anyone who needs to get saved, life, death and eternity. The question, what happens when you die? Largest meeting we ever held in that church was the night I debated an atheist. Uh, we had 1,500 people buy tickets to get into the church. We couldn't actually look after 1,500 people. Uh, we gave the money to the children's hospital and we debated whether Christians are deluded. He was a bit of a Richard Dawkins fan. He'd very keen to come and explain the God delusion to us. Um, and so we packed out the place. We got 1,300 people in the church and 200 outside. And for two hours we debated whether Christianity is a delusion. It's fascinating. You may have never seen a debate like that. Um, some of the people who came as atheists that night came back to church over the following months and became followers of Jesus. It's called the Great Debate. You might be interested. You might have a guy who thinks Christianity is a delusion. That one could help you, help him. Um, one last thing. One of the greatest responsibilities as a man is the management of earning money and managing your money. I was a um, high school teacher for, for nine years in all. And for seven years, I taught uh, commercial subjects. I have a sub-major in accounting. I have a Bachelor of Economics. And uh, yet, I never ran a budget. I, I did crisis management for the first 10 years of my marriage. When I first went into full-time ministry, my senior pastor sat me down and said, how are you going to manage on the miserable amount of money we intend to pay you? And uh, I didn't know how to answer because I'd never had a budget. So he sat down and he created one with me. I used my accounting background to put that into a framework and it totally changed my life. I have never ceased to thank God for that moment because it changed my life. I have never had a bill arrive in my house from that day to this that I couldn't pay the day it arrived. 
And uh, because I'm a pastor and you realise that it is not an, incom- an uncommon thing for one of the most fragmenting issues in a family's life is insecurity over finances because there's just never been any skill in managing finances well. I have created a course called Mastering Your Money and over a series of, uh, of events on DVD and with a workbook, I can not only help you to create an effective budget, but I can help you adopt a theology that will profoundly undergird the management of your finances in a way that honours your family, honours God, and honours the kind of life that God would be pleased to have you live. And uh, if that can help you, then I'm so glad. I'll be up the back later on. I have a whole bunch of resources up there. If any of them are useful to you, then I'd be glad to make them available. But tonight we're going to talk about a man and his anger. This is my favourite job, talking to men. Uh, why is that, Al? Well, here's, an ex- here's one of the reasons. John Gottman. John and Julie Gottman would be perhaps the best-known marriage counsellors in the world. They have profoundly impacted the, the way all kinds of professional people, including ministers, pastors, counsellors, psychologists of various kinds, tackle the, their approach to, to uh, ca- uh, coaching marriages. John Gottman just recently wrote a book called A Man's Guide to the Man's Guide to Women, and this is something he has to say to men that uh, you need to hear. Men have the power to make or break a relationship. What men do in a relationship is by a large margin the crucial factor that separates a great relationship from a failed one. This does not mean that a woman doesn't have to do her part, but the data proves that a man's actions are the key variable that determines whether a relationship succeeds or fails, which is ironic since most relationship books are written for women, heart surgery on the wrong patient. As a pastor and as a man, I am painfully aware of the power that I have to damage the woman who's committed herself to walk with me or to bless her. I have immense power in that woman's life. 51 years ago, a 19-year-old little girl that I met in high school stood alongside me and I said to her, forsaking all others and cleaving only unto you, in sickness and in health, for richer or poorer, for better or worse, till death us do part. And that little girl pinned her future to my promise. I have the power to make her wish she had never been born. I have the power to make her miserable. I can make her cry every day of her life if that's in my heart to do. I also have the power to fill her with confidence, to make her know she is the most significant and important person in my life, I have the power to let her have as many pairs of shoes as she wants and as many handbags as she wants because, you see, I'm a man and men have the power to make or break. And the fact is I'm here tonight realising that there are thousands of people in this room. When I talk to a man, I'm talking to all the women and children who look to that man for leadership. And if I can touch your life, I've touched all of theirs. So I think talking to men, for me, is the most significant thing I ever do. And tonight I want to talk to you about one of the critical issues in a man's life, and that is learning to manage his anger appropriately. Bible says in Exodus chapter 20, you shall not murder. 
But Jesus had something to say about that. This is one of the commandments that Jesus re, uh, revisited in the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus had this to say. He said, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Who would ever have thought that a simple emotion like anger could ever have this much significance in a man's life? But if there's anything you can know about the words of Jesus, he means everything he says and he says everything he means. So we've got to deal with it. The Bible has so many things to say about anger. Proverbs 16, the Bible says, Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than one who takes a city. The Bible says, Proverbs 29, A fool gives vent to his anger, but a wise man keeps himself under control. Proverbs 14, Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly and when it comes to anger um, it, it's kind of one of those emotions that kind of exists over an entire spectrum from uh, one end to the other and at the top end I guess there's uh, the word we call rage there's a gr word in the bible for that um, the normal word for anger is the word orge but when it comes to explosive anger then you've got thumos um, that's where no one's in any doubt that someone's angry because your face is red and spit's coming out everywhere and people are starting to wonder if there's going to be punches thrown. Um, explosions of displeasure. Um, Bible has something to say about that. I watched the impact of this in our own family. Bible says there's one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. I have a young brother. My young brother, Neil, was a heroin addict for some time, but he became the, uh, the head of uh, Teen Challenge in Victoria the last 14 years. It was interesting watching his progress or his decline into drug addiction because it pivoted around one single day in our family's life. My dad was a very honourable man. He's a school teacher who became a, a primary school principal and um, he was just upright. He was clean. I, I, must, I scared the Jimmy out of my poor dad because he'd come home and the police would be in the backyard. What have you done? Oh, I shot Russell Simpson in the backside, Dad. Yeah, well, why? He was stealing stuff off my bike, Dad. It seemed the only the right thing to do was to shoot Russell Simpson. So the police are there. What did you do, Al? I set the park on fire, Dad. What did you do? Oh, I took something out of Coles. My dad was an honourable man and it used to break his heart to come home and think that his kids would do dumb things well my two youngest brothers very early got into kind of motorbikes long before they uh, could illegally have a license and my young brother when he was 14 years of age um, was in love with a girl at school she had a boyfriend who was a lot older but he was in love with her and he used to go around to her house each morning and carry her books to school just to spend time with her one night he's coming home uh, in the dark across the, the park that was near our home and off in the distance near Belmore Road, he could see the lights blinking. looked like the police were there. And when he got there, there had been a significant accident. The ambulance were there and the police were there. And the girl that he was in love with was being loaded into the back of an ambulance. She'd been cut in half by a car. My brother uh, began to scream. 
My mother said she could hear him from 500 yards away. Uh, in our home, she could hear him coming home. He was so heartbroken over that, it nearly killed him. A week later, my dad was so angry with my brother, he looked him in the face and he said, I wish that had been you. That was the end of the family connections for the next five years. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. He poked a sword right through my brother's heart that day. He packed his bags and left home for wine, women, motorbikes and the drug scene and uh, he never surfaced again until he'd buried five of his best friends and had been arrested by the Commonwealth Police in possession of a large quantity of drugs and that was the beginning of his change of life. It all began with an angry word spoken in our kitchen by a dad who just didn't know how to manage the frustration he felt at kids who just would not behave in a way that he felt that they should. The Bible says that there's something you've got to know about anger. Proverbs 19 says, A man of great wrath will pay the penalty. If you deliver him, you will only have to do it again. The Bible is saying you've got to understand something, that anger is a learned behaviour. And once you learn anger, it's so easy to repeat it in different situations over and over again. I play golf. I can testify to the reality of that truth. Problem, of course, is that it's learned not only by you, it's learned by people who relate to you. The Bible says in Proverbs 22, Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. My dad was a really good man. Um, Perhaps the two things that um, damaged my relationship with him was silence and anger, those two things. He could go silent on you, he could get explosively angry. And that's one of the things I I talked through in that um, that, uh, DVD on from judge to father, the things that damaged my dad, my relationship with my dad, and also in another one called the parental paradox. My dad was such a good influence in my life, and in the same time, he, he made some bad impressions on my life, just in some of those simple issues of being silent when I wished he would have spoken and being explosive when I wished he could have calmed it down a little and dealt with things just a little more carefully. But he was my dad. And so I learned some of that stuff. I was um, in a bedroom one day and I was chewing out one of my boys. I was giving it to him. He was standing there up against the chest of drawers. And my, my 14-year-old boy looked me in the eye and he said, Dad, you scare the hell out of us. And I said to him, I'm not trying to scare the hell out of your son. I'm trying to be a good father. And he said, it's not working, Dad. And that was the day we sat down on the floor together. I suddenly, he, it was like my kid held a mirror in front of me and just reflected back to me what I, what I was doing was I just repeating what I'd seen my father do. When my dad got frustrated enough with us, he'd just rip into us and he had a voice that could break bricks. And he, he, was, he just had a great voice for yelling at people. And um, here I was yelling at my kid. And in that moment, I realised I'm doing exactly with my, what my dad did. Ask yourself a question, Al. How much did it help? And the answer is it didn't help. It alienated me from my dad. 
I wished my dad could have, been, could have coached me. I wish my dad could have sat me down and say, oh, let's talk this thing through. I want to talk to you about this. But we never did that. He would either explode or he'd go silent. And I had learned that. Now my boy's holding up a mirror. Dad, you scare the hell out of us. And in a moment of time, I realised I am damaging my own household. I sat down on the floor with him that night and I, I explained the thing to him. I said, son, I think I'm, I'm just repeating some unhelpful stuff from my own background. And I want to say something to you. Boy, this will never happen again. I will never deliberately try to scare the hell out of you again. I will deal with this stuff differently. And I did. I just made a decision. I'm not, I must never do this again. And I just decided not to. Uh, I decided that I would deal with my anger in a different way because I don't think it did me as much good as my father thought it, it did. That's anger. Anger. That's rage. That's the blowing up stuff. That's the explosions of displeasure. Now, there's a, a, a form of anger that sometimes people think is Christian anger. Um, that's this one down this end. Uh, repressed anger, you know, where you smile. <laughs> yeah, good on you, mate. But on the inside, you're thinking, I'll let your tyres down. That's what I'll do. <laughs> you know, there's a word in the Bible for that kind of anger. It's called paragismos. It's the kind of anger that's it's a silent anger. It slithers through life. It's like a snake. You don't give it expression. And people think that's Christian anger. You know, it's the anger you have where you don't let it out. No, that's just repressed anger. That's what that is. Um, Bible has something to say to fathers about this. It says, fathers, provoke not your children to this kind of anger. Paragismos. Provoke not your children to anger. The kind of anger that's, you, where you demand that they shut up and say nothing, even though they... they they feel there's injustice and that's unfair and I, and I, w- would I wish I could say how I feel. No, I'm your father. I brought you into the world. I can take you out again. And <laughs> Bible says don't do this to kids. Don't do it to anybody. Don't do it to staff. Don't do it to your employees. Don't do it to your wife. Don't do it to you. Don't create that kind of anger where people have to pretend that stuff they need to talk about is not allowed to be talked about. No, this is not Christian anger, it's just repressed anger. And this is the kind of stuff that becomes a landmine. Because when you stuff this stuff long enough, it's one person does something and, you, and you're not going to put up with this for one more minute longer. And unresolved anger is just a landmine waiting to blow up in somebody else's face. And as a result, Jesus has something profound to say. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment and whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council and whoever says you fool the term he uses there is it's it's a um it's a uh, term in the aramaic raka it's like um what the think of the the most insulting thing you can say in english and that's what raka means it's translated you fool but it's just an abusive term a way of demeaning somebody you'll be liable to the hell of fire. And as a result, we've got to understand something. Anger is one of the most, adain- most dangerous uh, emotions you'll ever deal with in your life. And so Ephesians has this to say to us, be angry and don't sin. Well, how do you do that? Well, we've got to talk about that because there's reasons for anger and God doesn't want you to suppress your anger when, it's, when it, it needs expression in the right way. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And here's a clue. Give no opportunity to the devil. 
So you've got to understand this. Whenever, whenever anger is on the agenda, it doesn't matter if it's on a board meeting and angry people are sitting around. It doesn't matter if it's in an eldership. Angry people sitting around. It doesn't matter if it's a kitchen table. Angry people are sitting around a table. The moment anger is on the agenda, there is a spirit in that room hoping to make this as destructive an encounter as possible. And you've got to appreciate this is, this is anger is rarely an expression of heaven. It is more likely an expression of hell. And as a result, if anger is in the room, you immediately got to guard yourself because there is a, there's a spirit in the room that would like to turn this into a fractured relationship, a divorce, an alienation, a boy packing his bags and leaving home. This is a moment where an evil cloud hangs over it. You've got to guard the moment and learn some skills. See, part of the issue of life is talking about stuff before it happens. And uh, if tonight suddenly appears in your world in the next week or so, don't be surprised that God was giving you an opportunity to learn a skill before you needed it. Uh, may, it may it emerge in your consciousness in time for you to be able to use it. Well, let me ask this question. Why, why do people get angry? I mean, if you, if you were to ask yourself, you know, what, what's your anger about? Where do you fit in the cluster of issues that cause you to be angry? Because there's, there's a number of reasons. The first one is that you perceive that an injustice has just taken place. Um, Jesus demonstrated this kind of anger. When he came to the temple that God had established as a meeting place of prayer for all nations. That was God's intention in having the temple at Jerusalem. So there's a house of prayer for all nations. Now, not everybody can come. They can come as far as the court of the Gentiles. But the intention was that no matter who you were in the world, if you, could, if you just knew that there's a God in Israel, well, what's his address? Well, good question. Where does Santa Claus live? Well, everybody knows where Santa Claus lives. Where does he live? Well, see, everyone knows that. They know Santa Claus lives at the North Pole. Where does God live? Well, in, if you went back in Old Testament, God lives in Jerusalem. That's where the, that's where the Holy of Holies is, where he manifests himself. You could go to the temple, which was set up as a house of prayer for all nations, and you could go there with your burden and you could explain to a Jewish person your need and they would carry that in on your behalf. That was the intention. When Jesus turned up, they turned it into a way of ripping them off for dough. He turns up and, and all they're doing here is turn this into a money-making venture. And he was so outraged at the injustice. This was supposed to be a meeting place with God and you've turned it into a den of thieves. You rob people as they walk through the door. And he made a, a, a whip out of cords, and when they saw the look on his face, they couldn't get out of there fast enough. Because what he was, he was burning with the injustice of people who should have known better were damaging the connection of other people to the great grace of God. He was angry about that. Problem, of course, is that often our perceptions kind of get out of whack. So you've been standing in the line at the supermarket and someone pulls in front. You know, they get in the front. Hey, mate, you know, injustice. That's unfair. I've been waiting here. You get down to the back of the line. Well, it is an injustice. You've got to, in, you know, in the, the big scheme of things, in a big universe, it's probably not a big deal. So you kind of got to weigh it up and decide whether you really want to punch the bloke for, or just say, 
go right ahead. I'm always interested, when I'm getting on a plane, I was interested, people want to push in to get in the line on the plane. I, I, I reckon we're all going to leave about the same time, mate. Um, <laughs> I'm pretty sure of that. I don't think you get to leave earlier because you got on in front of me. So feel free, you know. What's that about? Perceived injustice. Is that what does it for you? Because injustice is something we're supposed to get angry about. Just got to handle it rightly. The woman who um, came up with the MADD, Mothers Against Drunk Drivers, did so after the death of, her, of one of her sons killed by a drunk driver. She turned her anger into something productive and began, to move, uh, began a movement designed to try to save somebody else's son from the same fate. Perceived injustice. Second one is perceived hurt. You've got feelings and they get hurt. Um, we'll talk about that again in a minute because I want to open this one up a bit for you because as men, um, we, we can be pretty volatile when we feel like someone's hurt our feelings or someone's made us feel inadequate. Another third one is perceived fear. Something you value is being threatened. You see kids um, acting boisterously around little children and you'll see angry parents because you're going to injure my child. You keep acting like that and so they, they flare because something they highly value is in danger. So I'm getting angry. I'll protect uh, something that's really valuable. And the last one, and this is me, this is my goal, perceived frustration. I'm supposed to be able to get this thing in the hole. You know, you're three feet to go. If I drop this part, it's a par. Part miss. What the Jimmy? And what's that about? Well, they don't pay me for doing this. I mean, the reality is um, I don't get paid for playing golf. It costs me money. Um, if I go in with a, a, an 80 or an 81, what's the big difference? And uh, you can find yourself saying words that aren't written in the Bible when you're playing... <laughs> You're playing this game and it's all just about pure frustration. I'm trying to make the thing go in. I was playing golf one time with a Buddhist. It's really funny, you know, playing golf with a Buddhist. And I was practising on the putting green before we went off. And he comes up to me and he could see I was, you know, trying to get the ball, trying to putt. He says, the reason... He's speaking a little with an Indian accent. The reason uh, you you are frustrated is because you want it to go in. And I said, yeah. Well, when, it, when you don't mind if it goes in or not go in, then you will find perfect peace. <laughs> well, maybe I would, but I'm not playing golf anymore. <laughs> I wanted to go in, mate. It makes a difference. So I discovered that apparently Buddhists don't mind if it doesn't go in. Well, I'll take your money. Thank you very much. <laughs> And this is where, when we come to this, this cluster, we now have to deal with something that is um, really significant for us as men, and that is something that counsellors call masculine gender role stress, also known as gender role conflict. Um, it's the problem with the man box. It's the stress generated when a man perceives that a situation that he's currently in represents his manhood and he, he perceives there's a chance I might fail a man test right now. And in that moment, he's under stress because no man ever wants to feel like he doesn't cut the mustard. He's, you know, he's just not up to it. Um, 
it is particularly dangerous when, it, when a boy has been raised in an environment where there's a lot of shame projected toward him and it produces the boy code. It is something all of us as men have been developing ever since we were old enough to hear voices and make sense out of what was being said. Don't walk like a girl. Don't play like a girl. Don't throw like a girl. Don't cry like a girl. Because you're a man and you've got to, if you're going to be a man, there are man behaviours and you need to be able to tick those boxes, mate. And it's interesting how far men will go when they suspect that a man test is on, is on the agenda. Now, other people may not recognise it, but suddenly it's become a man test. Now, they did a study on this. It's called the Ice Cube Study. <laughs> the Ice Cube Study was run by a university to see whether it made a difference as to what you told men before they did the Ice Cube Test. And the Ice Cube Test is simply a bucket filled with ice cubes and water. So it's ice-cold water. Now, you bring a whole bunch of guys into the room and you say, now, we just want to see how long you can hold your fist in uh, a nice cold bucket of water. And you, do, you run that test and if there's no one else in the room, then, guys, you'll just find out how long they can, can take it. But if you tell the men that the reason you're doing the test is because men with high levels of testosterone don't feel pain the same way men with low levels of testosterone do, dudes will put their hand in that bucket and they'll die before they're taking it out. I'm not taking it out for nothing, man, because, you see, suddenly this became a man test. So am I a real man? Well, if my arm falls off, that's a small price to pay for being able to walk out of here feeling like I'm more of a man than the other dudes who took their hand out of the ice bucket. And this is just indicative of a dynamic that goes on inside men, um, a preoccupation with whether or not they're physically adequate. Um, who's in charge? Am I in charge? Is a girl in charge? Um, emotional inexpressiveness. Am I look, do I look like I'm a man? Am I, am I kind of emotionally behaving myself as a man? Intellectual inferiority. Who's smarter and who's dumber around here? And performance failure. All of that goes to masculine gender role stress. And the tragedy with men is that there are, the men are vulnerable to attaching negatives to what you would think perhaps has nothing to do with masculinity. Uh, boys who are exposed to shame become ultra-sensitive to it. These are the really dangerous people because these people, by a single look in a bar, will suddenly be smashing a glass into somebody else's face because they perceive that look to in some way be a slight or a hurt, a hurt feeling or a, diminish, a diminishing of their manhood or that I'm not afraid of you and suddenly they're flaring and being the most dangerous animal on the planet because they feel like there's a danger of them not uh, proving that they're the man that they hope they are. Because the reality is that men will do almost anything to avoid or defend against a shaming message, particularly if it seems to be directed at your manhood. Now, that leads to the understanding of the man box. What's in your man box? What's in your box? Um, masculine gender role stress. The, the, more, the more you got in your man box that you don't understand, the more dangerous you are because incidents that other people could, would never have perhaps have imagined would be, for you, a man test, turn into a man test. 
And in that moment, what's in your man box can, dis- can determine whether you go to jail or whether you ruin a marriage or whether you damage a, uh, a child's upbringing. It's all on the line with the man box. And the, the difficult thing is you, ha- you probably haven't got a clue what's in your man box. Um, what do you mean by the man box? Sir? What, do you talk- what do you mean man box? Well, it's the cluster of things that you have come to believe about manhood and about you and manhood. It's the kind of answers like this, you know. What are men supposed to be? That's what you've come to believe about that. Well, I believe. I, what, what do I believe? Oh, a real man is a real man. Well, a real man is, is, is strong. He lifts up heavy weights. A real man is aggressive. He's kind of, you know, he's, he, he's got his face to the wind. He's, he's the first into battle. That's what a real man is. What's a, real, a real man's a winner. That's what he is. A real man is in charge. Uh, what's a real man? He's feared. What? What? What's he supposed to be? Well, he's supposed to be feared. Real man's supposed to be respected. He's supposed to be treated carefully. And you, you have no idea what, what you've built up uh, in, in your man box. Well, here's another question. What, what are real men supposed to do? Um, well, I mean, it depends on where you are. Real men's supposed to drink. Drink more than other people can normally drink. I can drink on the table. Real man, well, he fights. See, that's what he does. He gets his fists out. He takes charge. He dominates. He fires up. That's what a real man's supposed to do. Is that so? Okay. What's a real man supposed to have? Well, a real man's supposed to have pretty girl. Supposed to have an amazing car with at least eight cylinders. Um, supposed to have money. Got to be spunky. Uh, Daring, he's got to have hairy chest. That's a real man, hairy chest. Man got real man's got muscles. That's what a real man's got. Um, what is a real man not supposed to do or be or have? Well, depends what you put in. It's not supposed to cry. Not supposed to throw like a girl. Not supposed to run away. Not supposed to back down. Real man, well, he'd never feel fear. That'd be a real man. Whatever you have come to believe about real manhood is your man box. And the dangerous thing is you haven't got a clue what's in there. And it requires a circumstance to reveal to you that you've got something in there that you haven't even put a name to. Now, I did a professional development day a couple of years ago with a, with a guy who, who counsels men. He was a counselling psychologist and he was a very smart dude. And what's on that day? I got that from him. And I couldn't, I've, as he was explaining it, I thought, you know, this is brilliant stuff, I'm wonderful. I can't wait to write this all down and go share, share with some men uh, all about this stuff because this could really help people. Four days later, we get in a plane, we fly out of Australia, we're going to the US. Uh, if I can't afford uh, or haven't got uh, a business class ticket, I hate doing that trip to the US. It's like you're born on the plane, you're on there so long. And I figured, well, we go via Hawaii because it's a shorter trip and we can hang around for a few days. Helen loves that. Get her a nice hotel right on the beach for a few days because she loves seeing the water. And I'm doing all the right things. I'm doing a great thing. I'm looking after my girl. Um, Another thing I know she loves, I take her shopping. Let's go shopping. Okay, that's got to be a good thing. So this time I say to her, um, let's not take the bus down to the shopping centre. Let's walk along the beach here in Hawaii and because the shopping centre's kind of on the beach and we're on the beach, how hard can it be? We'll just walk around down the beach and we'll get the shopping centre. So I take her by the hand and off we go. And we're walking through one resort after another and unexpectedly, as I'm making my way down the beach, I come to a resort and there's a chainmail fence that runs right through the resort, across the sand and out into the water. 
they're taking protection quite seriously, these people. So I see it coming up and I'm, I look at the fence and I realise, well, I'm not turning left, that's the Pacific, you know, you've only one option here, you turn right. So I get to the fence, I turn right, I'm walking along the fence and I hear Helen behind me say to me, you don't know where you're going, do you? <clears throat> she said that to me. <clears throat> what was stunning was the, the instantaneous response. I exploded on the inside. I spun around and I ripped in it. What do you mean? I'm feeling I want a new I can't believe I've done that. And I ripped into a really a, a, an appalling display. And immediately I'm embarrassed at my own behaviour. I've just I just abused my wife. And turn around, start walking along the fence again, and saying to myself, what was that about? Where did that come from? Well, she's a smart girl. She doesn't say anymore. <laughs> we, walk, we walk along the fence. And as I suspected, I find a gate. We go through the gate. We get out on the street. We walk on down to the shopping centre. And when we get to the shopping centre, we haven't said another word, we separate. And I said, I'll see you at lunchtime. And off she goes. And for two hours, I walked around that shopping centre. And I, all I was doing is I said to God, what was that about? Where did that come from? I'm trying to treat this girl uh, like, she, like a little treasure and I blow up in her face. Now, fortunately, I'd sat in this dude's counselling thing, so I've got some tools to work with. I start asking myself, what did you feel, Al? Oh, I felt ruddy angry. I was angry. Why? All she said to you was, you don't know where you're going, do you? And the answer to that question, realistic, would have been, true, I don't. Then why did you blow up in her face? Because that's not what I heard. When she said to me, you don't know where you're going, do you? I heard her say, you idiot. You've got us lost again. And as the more I thought about it, I thought, you know what she did? She poked me in the man box. Well, what did you expect her to say? Well, this is what I expected for her to say. Oh, Al, behold, a chain mail fence. Totally unexpected to the both of us. But, but you, Al, are a man. And confronted with the unexpected, I trust you, Al. For you are a solver of problems. <laughs> and I'm totally confident that, unexpected though it may be, you will find a way and I will trust in you because you are the leader in this household and have never failed us yet. <laughs> but she says to me, you don't know where you're going, do you? <laughs> And I began to realise a lot of our fights are like this. If we're going to fight, it often, it's like I'll explode at something, she says, because she poked me in the man box. I'm a man, trust me for two minutes. I mean, couldn't you just say, oh, where do you think we should go?
And I'd say, follow me, we'll find a way. And I would find a way and then you would say, how amazing you are. How wonderful to be married to a true man, for true men know the answer to problems. You see, why do men not ask for directions? Why don't men ask for directions? Because in our man box, we think, if you just give me a moment, I'll figure it out. Because that's what we do. We, we, we find a way. We're men. And in my man box, I want, don't you know that? Don't you know that that's a mark of my manhood? Is that I'll figure it out, sweetheart? No. You don't know where you're going, do you? <laughs> when we finally sat, met again for lunch, a couple of hours later, we sat down and I said to her, I've got two things I need to say. The first is this, I am genuinely sorry. I was rude to you. And I'm deeply ashamed of my behaviour. She said, that's okay. She's had a lot of practice at forgiving me over the years. <laughs> I said, but the second thing is, I think I understand something. You poked me in the man box. When you, when you said, you don't know where you're going, do you? I heard you say, you're an idiot. You've got us lost again. That's what I heard. And as a result, I exploded because I felt like you were criticising me. Um, and I'm just, all I'm trying to do is take you out and have a nice day. I feel like you're criticising me. And all I wanted you to do was just tr trust me, you know. Well, we, got, we got here. We'll, we'll find a way through. And I said, this is, goes to the root of a lot of our arguments because I feel like what happens when we argue, it's because you poke me in a man box. And I flare because I feel like in some way I've been kind of hurt or disrespected or there's no trust. And she said, well... <clears throat> How, am I, how, am I, how do I um, not do that again? And I said, well, you couldn't imagine all the ways you could poke me in the man box. I mean, I think there's, that manual has not yet been written. I mean, there's, there's no way I could explain to you how this is your problem. It's not your problem, sweetheart. This is my problem. Because the, you don't even... I don't even know what's in this man box. This is the first time I figure out what this, what's going on here. Is that I feel like my man box has been challenged. Now, I'm, I'm kind of now, I'm doing some work on the inside to say she doesn't mean to, she's just a woman asking her question her way. And I'm a man yelling at you because that's my way, you see. So, and I don't want it to go on like that because that's not heaven. This is not what heaven looks like. God doesn't come screaming out at him and say, oh, I told you about this before, I can't believe it. He just doesn't do that to us. He's patient, there's patience in heavenly places. And as a result, that day we changed something. Here's the problem. When you've got no insight to your own man box, you've got a lot of stress because you can be sitting at the lights and the, the lights would happen to us today. We're sitting at the lights, the lights change green, the guy behind us blows his horn. Now, what he's saying by blowing the horn is, the light has changed, mate. But you hear, you idiot. Can't you tell the difference between green and red? And the next thing, a guy jumps out of his car with a tyre iron and smashes somebody's windscreen, and before you know it, people are going to jail because you blew the horn. But you've poked, you've poked him in the man box. You made him feel dumb because uh, when you've got a man box and you don't understand what's in there or how it's being uh, provoked... Here's the consequences. You're unhappy, you're depressed, you're restless, you're empty, you're hurting, and you're often resentful of other people because they don't respect me the way I should be. 
Intimate relationships are being damaged between kids and wives and sometimes be, even between friends. And even in churches, this can happen without, without even knowing it, that you've poked someone in the man box and now there's a flaring response and suddenly uh, people are being damaged. In fathering, it comes out like punishing more and, and coaching less. Um, the tragedy is that the more wounded you are, the least likely you are to get help. Yeah, because you're trying to guard and protect yourself. And you're not only suffering, but you're generating suffering for other people also. Why are you angry? Because you perceived that this was unjust. Uh, you perceived hurt. I felt she was calling me an idiot just by asking a question. Um, perceived fear or perceived frustration. And beginning to work on your man box, beginning to try to understand, what have I got stored up in here? What have I attached to my manhood that maybe is damaging my, my role as a husband or a father or as a follower of Jesus, as a friend, as a co-worker? What's going on here? You can only tell as emotions flare, stop and ask the question, what was that about? What happened just then? And if you'll wait and talk to God about it, he will help you. The Bible said, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Because God gives wisdom and he won't withhold it from you. You say, Lord, why am I behaving like this? He'll help you to see the trigger. And when you begin to see it, you can begin to hold that before the Holy Spirit. You can be able to hold it in your relationship with Jesus and let him begin to bring a different view of manhood into your life. So here's the bottom line. Let's, let's wind this thing up by giving you some very practical steps to take. Bible says this, a man of wrath stirs up strife and one given to anger causes much transgression. A soft answer, the Bible says, turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The wonderful thing about it is you can make, uh, you can make uh, a, de- a decision. Uh, one of the angriest and most dangerous moments in my marriage I was in full-time ministry. I came home late. I said I was going to be home early in the afternoon. I came home late in the afternoon. I walked in the door and Helen was fuming. She was really angry. Uh, It was the days there were no mobile phones. She didn't know where I was, if I was ever coming home. And she's cooking at the stove and she's really giving it to me. She's really angry. Well, as she's pouring her anger at me, I'm getting getting, um, kind of stirred up myself because I've been out saving the world, sweetheart, you know. (laughs) I'm a man, you know, and what I was out there doing, so I mightn't be able to tell you about it. I was doing important stuff, and here you are, come home, and instead of falling at my feet in adoration, I'm getting spewed on here, and I'm telling you what. And so I'm getting really angry, and I can't wait for it to shut up because I've got some stuff to put into this conversation. And when I finally get a little moment, I give her a burst. Now, being a woman, the, uh, the sense of what I said seemed to fall on deaf ears. Because her, the colour in her face went kind of from red to purple. The veins on her neck were pulsing like this. And now she's really angry. Well, I'm, I'm feeling a little bit of that myself. And I can't wait to shut up. And she's giving me a little more. And I can't wait to get, get my turn. Because, babe, if you think I've finished sharing my insights for life, you've got another thing coming. <laughs> And now I'm like a volcano on the inside and in the middle of that God spoke to me as clear as I'm speaking to you. And God said to me, how long are you going to keep this up? And I instantly realised I had a choice. I could say what I was preparing to say or I could not. 
And I don't, it's not always easy to explain why you obey God and sometimes you don't. But on that, in that moment, I suddenly realized that I had a choice. And if I was going to be a man of God, it was time to make a godly choice. And I stopped and realized I'm damaging the girl I love. So I did a very dangerous thing. I moved over closer to her. <laughs> and, and I said to her, I'm sorry. And the moment I did, it was like a plug was pulled in my gut. And all of this bile and anger just began to drain away. And instead of it, I could feel compassion. I've upset her. I've, I've made her worry. See, well, this, is, this looks like anger to you. But actually, it's concern. She didn't know where you were. She didn't know, has anything happened? And now she's venting. So have some compassion. Then I said another dangerous thing. I said to her, can we pray? She said, I'll give you a pray. I'll tell you, I'll pray, all right. And I was close enough for her to have severely damaged my manhood should she have decided to use her knee in an unwomanly direction. And I, I realised she was angry enough to do that. If, if, if This was not a, a very safe time to be very close to her. Now I watched her as a Christian struggling with her anger. And I watched her face as she just contemplated for a moment and then she just bowed her head and she let me pray. And instantaneously, it was like a demon left that room. It was just, look, we felt it, bam, something left. And we both realised this was a very dangerous moment. The Bible says, um, careful about anger, give the devil no place. There was a demon in that room hoping that a pastor would punch his wife or the wife would punch her husband and another ministry team would find themselves on a pathway to divorce and wipe them out of the race. There was a dark cloud. And in that moment, in that moment of decision, we both realised we are being hunted. We're being hunted. Uh, we are a target. Uh, we, we held each other. We prayed. And the Bible says a soft answer turns away wrath. All I had to say was, I'm sorry. Can we pray? And suddenly we're in a, we were in a, a different world. The Bible said scoffers set a city aflame, but the wise turn away wrath. Listen, one of the kindest things you can ever do for one of your children, for a wife, um, for a friend, is to help them turn their anger away. Help them. And a soft answer does it. It doesn't matter how, how much you could justify your side of the deal. It's kindness to help people drain the anger out of a situation by saying something that uh, will calm them. I had a pastor friend of mine once who went into a situation of domestic violence and when he came into the room, the woman was cowering and the man was holding a huge butcher's knife and he was angry. And he started to stalk the, my friend around the table and he simply said, he heard God say to him, a soft answer turns away wrath. And he simply said to him, sir... That won't do you any good, and it won't do me any good. And as soon as he said that soft word, the guy just slumped to the ground. God touched his life. He slumped to the ground. And a very dangerous situation was started. He could have said, you come near me and I'll punch your lighter. He simply said, it won't do you any good. It won't do me any good either. Drain the anger out. And suddenly, heaven is raining. Here's the first thing to do with anger. Stop it. Let the thief no longer steal. Some things you don't need counselling about and you don't need six years of therapy to get over it. You just need to make a decision. Now, that's not always true, but often it's true. 
Often the only difference between this outcome and that outcome was making a decision. And many times in that moment, just make a decision. I will no longer steal. Ephesians 4 says this, give no opportunity to the devil. Well, what, do I, what Lord, what do you want me to do? Well, here's the first thing. Be honest. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbour, for we are members one of another. Don't embellish it. Don't be harsh. Don't be judgmental. Just say, can I tell you how it feels from my side? Can I just tell you how I see this? Speak the truth. Secondly, do it softly. We call it in marriage counselling soft start-ups. Because wherever a conversation, when a conversation begins with the heightened um, anger and, and intensity up here, it calls that forth from the other side. Lower the thing down and do a soft start-up. Ephesians 4 says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Lower your voice. Talk softly. Say, I'm sorry. Can... Can we talk about it? Can we pray? Communicate graciously. Don't say harsh words. You know the problem with you? You always do this. You never do that. Catastrophizing talk. Don't say that. Let me explain how I feel. You do not, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you with all malice. Communicate graciously. And sometimes you just got to leave some stuff to God. Psalm 4 says, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Sometimes silence is better than a long explanation. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. We have a course for men we call Man to Man. In that course, over 10 weeks, we, discover, we discuss things like the arena of healing, functional and dysfunctional family systems, uh, a man's tendency towards isolationism. Women tend towards codependency. Men tend towards isolationism. Our tendency is increasingly when we get hurt, we're like bears. We, dis we draw back into the back of a cave and we stay away from people and have a tendency to be like a bear in the dark. God what needs to heal that because we need each other. Shame and guilt, emotions, anger, conflict resolution, sexual addiction... Intimacy and sexuality, forgiveness and moving ahead. And it is my uh, belief that there will be an opportunity in the next year or so to do this, that, that course right here in your own church. And if tonight made some sense to you, this course could also add to what we shared tonight. Put your hand upon your heart. Just put your hand right here. Heavenly Father, uh, you know our hearts. And often we don't. We just don't, often just don't know what we've got stored up in here, what we have come to believe about our manhood. I pray for every man in this place tonight who heard something that resonated with his life. You know the bits that resonated with each man. I pray for the man in particular tonight who realises that anger is all too often something that flares to the surface. And tonight we make a decision. And our decision is not to say we'll never do that again because, Lord, that would be more than we can honestly say because we may well do it again. But from this moment we want to learn more about our, our hearts. 
For you have said, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of your heart flow the issues of life. Oh, God, uh, help me understand my own heart. That I could let you, Jesus, bring healing to what I believe about myself. We pray for the ones who look to us for leadership. We pray for the wives represented in this room. We pray for the girls who are being raised uh, in our home. We pray for the boys that are being raised in our home. And we pray for fresh grace from heaven. Fresh, Lord God, I, Lord, uh, you're here tonight, you, you, you heard something and you realise that you may be st- wounding your children. You know one of the most important things you can ever do is quietly at some point sit with them and say, I'm sorry. I know that there have been times I've been angry and it hasn't done our relationship any good. Could you forgive me and um, help me be a better man? Your kids will love you for it. They'll love you for it. They'll forgive you as long as you can see uh, what it was that could be unhelpful. Father, I pray over my friends tonight. I pray a blessing on this church. I pray a blessing on the community that it serves. And I pray that good men will flow out of this house to draw other men to the cross of Jesus. Let them see in our lives amazing grace and let it woo them to the Savior. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. You've been very kind. I'll be up the back later on to answer any questions. And if I can help you with any of my resources, I'll be grateful. Later on in this week, I've got some good stuff coming. So if you get another chance to be in one of the meetings, don't miss it because you'll be sorry if you do. And then I'll get angry and I'll come to your house. (laughs) We hope you enjoyed this message from Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. If you'd like to talk to someone about what you've heard today, then you can contact the team at Mount Pleasant Baptist Church by calling the office during office hours on 9329-1777. Thanks for joining us. We look forward to your company again soon. God bless.